We're going to continue our series, Mission 2022. And we're going to continue in Acts in the first century church as we know that God did amazing and wonderful things in the life of that church. The birth of the church at Pentecost, we talked about last week a little bit. That the day of Pentecost was something that had been celebrated probably some 1,500 times in the history of Israel. It was a yearly feast that was celebrated every year since the days of Moses. But this Pentecost in the first century was a little bit different. This Pentecost was where the Holy Spirit of God was poured out upon the world, upon the people of the world. We talked about a little bit last week that now, because of the time period that we live in, which is known as a dispensation, that we as believers get to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. What that means is, is the Holy Spirit, once you're saved, moves on the inside of you literally and lives there for the rest of your life until you go to be with Him in heaven. We have a beautiful beautiful privilege as believers today, that we get to be the temple of God. So as we think through that, today the title of my sermon is, It Never Gets Old. And what I mean by that is the gospel message of Jesus Christ never gets old. That is the core message of church. That's the core message of Pole Creek. As we stand upon the scriptures and the word of God, we are never going to stop preaching the gospel. We may preach different scripture passages, we may preach about different people in the Bible, We may preach in different ways on different Sundays, but it will always lead back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know why that is? It's because Jesus is everywhere in the Bible, from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation 22. You cannot study scripture, no part of the Bible, whether it's the Old or New Testament, without seeing Jesus in the Bible. The Old Testament is pointing forward to the coming Messiah. The New Testament is looking back to the time that Jesus died and rose again. It's all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're turning in your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and we're just going through this first part of Acts verse by verse. We believe that's the best way to understand the passages of Scripture. We don't believe in pulling obscure verses and trying to take meanings out of those, but we believe in taking the Scripture in context because that is the way that it was inspired and the way it was written. Therefore, that's the way we ought to read it and understand it is in its context. So just to start out, though, just for the introduction today, We're going to read Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. So if you will, go ahead and stand to your feet as we honor God's word. And we're going to begin in verse 22. The Bible says this, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Let's pray. Dear God, we are thankful for the word. We're thankful that we have the freedom to hold a complete Bible in our hands. Lord, as we were talking in Bible study today, we know that our brothers and sisters in North Korea our brothers and sisters in China, our brothers and sisters in Somalia. Lord, if they're caught with a New Testament, they can be punished, imprisoned, and even killed. But today, Lord, we stand unfearful, no fear at all of what may happen to us because of the freedoms that you have allowed us to live under. Lord, help us not to take this for granted today, but to use it for your glory. Help us to honor your word, God, as it is the words of life. It helps us know who you are. It is your revelation of yourself so that we can know you, God so that we can know how to be saved, so that we can know the difficult questions or the answers to the difficult questions of life. So God, today, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be among us 
and that you would move mightily in our service. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So throughout history, there have been messages that have been proclaimed. There have been some messages that have been more important than others, and there have been some messages that have rung out and have had a mark in history. You know, I think about even modern history in the United States. I think about the I Have a Dream speech from Martin Luther King Jr. That is a speech that will live in, in, forever. It will live in fame, in, in history, forever and ever. It was a great speech about the equality of every person, how God has made every person in his image. We think about the speech of Ronald Reagan whenever those astronauts died and how he rallied the country and encouraged the country to come together during that time. There are many messages throughout history, and we could list many, many more today, that have meant so much to us as a nation, as a culture, and as a people. But there is no message greater than the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no message greater. There is no message more important. There is no message more powerful. There is no message that can reach more lives than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, as we think about the gospel, we understand that the God of the gospel is important. That it's not just a gospel of humanitarianism, where we just try to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and house the, the homeless. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel, yes, has aspects of that as we're trying to reach people. But the central idea of the gospel is there is a true God who loves us and who died for us. Who made a way for us to be saved. And it is important that we get the identity of that God right. It's not just something where we can throw out the name Jesus. There's a lot of Jesuses in our society today. There's a lot of religions that adhere to some Jesus. But is it the Jesus of the Bible? Today, I want us to look at the Trinity in light of the gospel message. We are Trinitarian in our faith and in our belief. We believe in a God who exists in three persons. One God who exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And throughout the church ages, that has been the core doctrine that has been under attack time and time again. Because Satan knows that if he can undermine the doctrine of the Trinity, that he can undermine your ability to be saved. If you don't trust in the God who is three persons in one God, you can't be saved. If you don't believe in the God who is Jesus, in the God who is the Father, in the God who is the Holy Spirit, you cannot be saved. If you believe in any other God today, your salvation is null and void. It is important that you get the identity of our God correctly. There has been some throughout history who have tried to explain the Trinity. There have been concepts that have been misunderstood. There have been people who have just completely disbelieved the Trinity because of its complexity, and some who have tried to completely explain it away. Some have even tried to explain the concept of the Trinity by using earthly examples. You've probably heard the water example. Well, God is like water because water can be steam, it can be liquid, and it can be a solid. The problem with that is, is that it's all water and it can all revert back to or change into the others. That is a flawed concept of the Trinity. There's others who say a man could be an example of the Trinity. A man who is a dad, a husband, and a son. He has three different roles, but yet he's still a man. That again is flawed because it is a man who changes modes, a man who has, becomes different things, but he's the same man. The Trinity is not like that. The Trinity, biblically understood, is that God exists in three persons. He's one God who exists in three persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and so forth and so on. He exists in three distinct persons. 
Three persons who have been unchanged throughout eternity past. Jesus Christ has never been the Father. Jesus Christ has never been the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has never been the Father. The Father has never been the Son. They have been distinctly different throughout all eternity, yet one God. A God of the same essence. Augustine, who lived from 354 A.D. to 430 A.D., once said this. If you explain away the Trinity, you will lose your soul. If you try to explain it, you will lose your mind. This has been a contested idea throughout church history, and that's why it is so important that we as modern-day believers get this right, because so many others have gotten it wrong. So many other cults and religions have got this wrong. Bible-believing Christianity is the only faith that says that Jesus Christ is the Creator God, that Jesus Christ has existed eternity past. Christianity is the only one. Every other religion, every other idea, every other occult has said that Jesus was a great creation. He was a great prophet. He was a great teacher. But you know what? He is not God, the creator. Well, explaining Jesus as anything less than the God of the universe is not Jesus Christ of the Bible. Only Jesus Christ of the Bible can save a lost sinner. Only the Jesus Christ of the Bible can take you from a hell-bound sinner to a heaven-bound saint. Only Jesus Christ of the Bible can do that. So in church history, in the year 325 A.D., there was something known as the Nicene Council. And what that was, was that was a group of of church leaders who met in those ancient times to discuss the very doctrine of the Trinity that we're talking about today. There was a man named Arian, or I'm sorry, Arrhenius. And what he said was, was that Jesus was created. That Jesus had not always existed, that Jesus came about at a particular time that God created him at some point in history. Well, the church at large said, no, that is heretical teaching. That is wrong. And as the church fathers met and discussed this, the church fathers came up with a creed. And this is what they came up with. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried on the third day. He rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our church forefathers left with the conclusion of we, got, we worship a God who is one God who exists in three persons. That the heresy of Arianism, the idea that Jesus was created, is a sinful belief, a false belief, and a belief that will take people to hell. Today, the Jehovah's Witnesses are a modern-day version of that 4th century Arianism. 
If you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they will say, yes, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, you need Jesus in order to go to heaven. But then you'll say, is Jesus God? No. As a matter of fact, they believe Jesus is an angel, the archangel Michael. Well, here's the problem. We use the same terminology. We're both talking about Jesus. The problem is, is they're talking about a different Jesus than the Bible teaches of. Just because we use the same terminology does not mean we believe in the same God. You know, you see the, the, the motto, the national motto, in God we trust. You see it on our money. Yeah, a lot of times you'll see it on law enforcement vehicles, fire trucks, different things like that. And hey, you know what? I agree. In God, I do trust. But the question you have to ask about that is which God? Hey, you may say, yeah, in God I trust. Which God? Which God do you trust in? Did you know that a lot of people think that all the founding fathers of America were all good Bible-believing Southern Baptist. You know it? Did you know that Benjamin Franklin was a deist? He actually did not believe in Jesus at all. Did you know that Thomas Jefferson took the Bible and cut all the miracles out of it of Jesus? It's called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. You can research that later. He did not believe in Jesus who is God. So we think that a lot of those roots are all rooted in Christianity. No, it's really, it was a good morality that our founders based this, based this country upon. And there were many who did believe in Jesus, but a lot who did not. So a lot of times when you hear mottos and things like that, the general population will agree with you, yes, in God we trust. And it's a good thing for our country to follow God. But if we as Bible-believing Christians, as Trinitarian Christians, we need to then follow up with the question, which God? Which God do you trust in? Which God are you following? Which God are you basing your eternity on? Is it the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses? Is it the God of the Mormons? Is it the God of Scientology? Is it the God of Catholicism that teaches that you have to do a bunch of works to get to heaven? Is it, is it the God of these occultic practices? Is it the God of Wicca who worships Mother Earth? Hey, you know what? You can talk to anybody about God. But you start talking about the Jesus who is God, and people have a problem with that. That's when you get right down to it. That's when you get down to the truth. That's when you get down to the exclusivity of Christianity. Because the Bible teaches in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father except by me. There are circles and groups of people, clubs that exist, that say, you know what? You can believe in any God. You can believe in a God of the Hindus, or you can believe in a God of Islam, or you can believe in all these different gods, but you know what? They all kind of funnel back to the supreme God, and that's okay. You can believe in whatever God you want as long as you're sincere. The Bible says that is a lie. The Bible says there is only one way to heaven, and that is through the Jesus who is God. The Jesus who became flesh and dwelt among us. The Jesus who is the Word, who is in the beginning with God and who was God. That is the only God who can save, by the way. Jesus Christ is the only God who exists. Jesus Christ is God. He has always existed. He has no beginning. His life did not begin in the manger. Jesus has always been and always will be. Jesus Christ is fully God. So as we think about the gospel and as we think about this message that never gets old, I want us to see here in this passage, as Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, how Peter believed. What did Peter believe about God? Because remember, we're wanting to go back to the first century church. We're wanting to see how did they operate? How did they evangelize? What did they believe about God and who did they believe God to be? Well, it's very clear in Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2 who they believed God to be. So the first thing they believed God to be if you're taking notes, write this down. God the Spirit. 
God the Spirit and the gospel. They believed in the Holy Spirit. And they believed that the Holy Spirit was non-negotiable in people being saved. That you cannot be a Bible-believing Christian without believing that the Holy Spirit is God. We find that in verses 14 through 21. Let's read those together. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, the Bible says this, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord's coming." Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here what Peter is doing is Peter is going back into the prophecy books. He's going back into the Old Testament, into the book of Joel, and he's recounting a prophecy that Joel spoke of. Joel actually prophesied of the day of Pentecost. And as Peter is preaching, remember last week we talked about the different tongues that these men were speaking. They were speaking in their own language, but yet the Jews who had come from all over the world and uh, converged on this place were hearing the apostles and those 120 speak in their own language. So there was real languages that were being spoken there and people were understanding in their native tongues. And some of the people there mocked them and they said, you know what, these men must be drunk. They're acting crazy. Man, they're talking in different languages and there's no way they actually know what they're saying. Well, Peter refutes that. Peter says, hey, you know what, you think they're drunk, but it's only nine in the morning. These men have not drunken anything. As a matter of fact, what was prophesied in the book of Joel has been fulfilled today. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon mankind. And now mankind is experiencing what it is like to be filled with and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Here he goes through the book of Joel as Joel mentions that. The theme of the prophecy is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now as we talk about this message that never gets old, what I want you to hear now in this point is that the Holy Spirit is necessary for your salvation. You may say, well, you know what, Ben, as long as I believe in Jesus... You know, as long as I believe in the person Jesus, then all that other stuff doesn't matter. And to a certain extent, that's true. If you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and that he is God and you trust him as your salvation, yes, that's all you need for salvation. But to reject the Holy Spirit as God is to reject the Jesus who is God. Because Jesus is not God without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not God without the Father. They are three in one. And to eliminate one is to recreate and develop a whole new God. A God that is not a God of the Bible. And as Peter is preaching the gospel to these people at Pentecost, he's wanting them to make sure they understand that the Holy Spirit is present today. And the Holy Spirit is the one convicting hearts today. And the Holy Spirit is changing lives at the day of Pentecost. One cannot come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin. If you are saved out there today, and there's been a time and a place in your life where you've trusted in Jesus, the reason that you trusted in Jesus was because the Holy Spirit initiated the transaction. The Holy Spirit came to you first and said, you need to be saved. Your sin is going to condemn you. 
You are a sinner in need of Jesus Christ. That's why you said yes to Jesus. The Bible teaches us that none seek after God. None are righteous, no, not one. You, on your best day, you're not going to go and look for God just because. We pursue God because he first pursues us. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11 say this, Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth, Jesus said. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. The counselor being the Holy Spirit. If I go, I will send him to you. He's talking about when, he's, when he ascends into heaven, he's going to send the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin. So he will convict the world about sin. He will show the world their sinfulness and will show them their need for Jesus. He will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin because they do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me. And about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. In other words, the Holy Spirit is doing a mighty work in the lives of humanity today. Anytime a soul is saved, it is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, listen, if I don't go away, the Spirit will not come. If I don't go away, the Holy Spirit will not come and continue the ministry that has been given. The Father sent the Holy Spirit in order to convict the world of sin. And I'm so glad that he convicted me one day. I remember when I was a six-year-old boy and I was laying in my bed that night. Man, I was feeling the shame and the guilt of my sin. Boy, I was worried about my eternity. And I remember running to my dad and saying, Dad, I don't want to go to hell. Dad, I don't want to die and go to the devil. And you know what he said? He said, Son, you don't have to. Jesus died for you and he rose again so you can be saved. You know what? I didn't run in there that night to my dad just because, just because I was smart or just because I thought, you know, about my eternity. I ran in there that night to my dad because the Holy Spirit, while I was laying in my bed that night as a six-year-old boy, was working in my heart. And he was saying, Ben, you need Jesus. Ben, your sin is going to take you to a place called hell. Ben, Jesus loves you and he died for you. That's why I got saved that night. Listen, without the working of the Holy Spirit, you cannot be saved. The Holy Spirit must be actively working in your life. You know, that's why it's so important as a church that we pray that the Holy Spirit is a part of our services. That's why it's so important as a church that we are sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who is going to give power to the service. Listen, if the Holy Spirit's not here, we might as well turn the lights out and go to the house. Because if the Holy Spirit is not actively engaged in this service, if it is not his service to command, then the service is null and void and it is no good. If I'm just up here hearing myself uh, talk and, and, and blow hot air, listen, that's not going to help anybody. The Holy Spirit must be involved. We must be a church who prays, Holy Spirit, move mightily today in our service. Holy Spirit, work in the hearts of those who are going to hear the gospel preached this Sunday. Holy Spirit, forgive me of my sins. Lord, let me not be a hindrance in the service this morning. If you want me to go forward, if you want me to move, if you want me to pray, if you want me to do something, Holy Spirit, move in my heart and help me to do it. Help me to obey your calling in my life. The Holy Spirit and the gospel. The Holy Spirit is necessary for salvation. Secondly, I want you to see this. God the Son and the gospel. So we've already talked about God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about God the Son and how he interacts with the gospel. We begin in verse 22 and we'll read through verses 28. The Bible says, Fellow Israelites, 
Listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Peter preaches to these Jews who the Messiah was. Now, the Jews would have clearly remembered this man named Jesus of Nazareth. As he's talking to him, that's what he calls Jesus in verse 22. This Jesus of Nazareth. Because immediately the Jews who were there at Pentecost listening to Peter preach would have remembered this Jesus. I mean, it would have only been some 50 days prior that he, the tomb would have been empty. And the story of the empty tomb would have permeated Jerusalem. They knew who Jesus of Nazareth was. Now, Peter was standing before them, a people who rejected Jesus as God, a people who rejected Jesus as the prophesied Messiah, and proclaims to them that this Jesus is God. This Jesus is the one sent by God the Father to save you from your sins. He is the one that you nailed to a cross. You murdered the Son of God, he preaches to them. They would have known very well who this Jesus was. And Peter begins to preach to them the two main aspects of Jesus' work on the cross. Now, when we think about the gospel, we focus on the work of Jesus on the cross. We focus on his death. We focus on his resurrection. And we understand that believing in those two aspects of Jesus Christ is what can save a lost soul. That and that alone is the price that will save you. That and that alone is the only sacrifice that can take a sinner to heaven. That is the only thing that will ever save you is the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Verse 23, Peter says this, Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. You ever wonder why God became a man? Was so he could die. See, God can't die. God could not suffer a death. God could not bleed. So God became a man so that he could die, so that he could bleed, so that we could be saved. Isn't that awesome? Then we see in verse 24, we talk about the resurrection. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Right there in those two verses, Peter just preached the gospel. He said, Jesus died and he rose again. He died so that you could be saved. It says, God raised him up, ending the pains of death. Did he only end the pains of death for Jesus? No. When Jesus rose from the dead, he made a way for the pains of all human beings to be ended. He made a way for all people to be saved. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's because of Jesus' resurrection that we can have victory over death, hell, and the grave. Because Jesus defeated death. Did you hear what it said there in verse 24? It was not even possible for him to be held by death. You know what? Jesus had never sinned. Death was unnatural for a sinless person. Death was not should never be the product of sinlessness. Death is the product and the punishment and the just punishment of sin. Here you have the sinless Son of God killed by lawless people, and the Bible teaches us that death could not hold him in the grave. 
that death itself was not powerful enough to hold in the sinless Son of God. As a matter of fact, he defeated it because God raised him from the dead. We have the impossibility of death holding Christ in its power. Aren't you glad today that because we know Jesus, the grave cannot hold us either? You know, when, when I or, or when Chase, when we do funerals and things like that, you know, one thing that we try to communicate to those folks who have lost a loved one is, yes, you, you're putting them in this, in this beautiful casket, you're honoring them by doing that, a uh, beautiful headstone, an honorable grave, in a beautiful cemetery, but that's only temporary. If they know Jesus, that thing's going to be empty one day. That's going to be an empty tomb. You know what's neat about Jesus? He didn't have his own tomb. He borrowed it. You know why? He didn't need to have his own. He was only going to use it for a couple of days. And then he was able to give it right back. Hey, you know what? Maybe we can do that. Maybe I can put my will when the rapture takes place or whatever. Hey, if anybody wants my, my, or my grave plot, take it. I don't need it. You know, it's going to be empty before long anyways. Aren't you glad that death does not have a grip on us as believers? As, amen, amen. As Peter is preaching to these Jews on Pentecost, he continues to bring up Old Testament prophecy. As you go through, a lot of your Bibles are going to have certain portions of that chapter in bold. What that means is, is that is a portion of Scripture that Peter is quoting from the Old Testament as he's preaching this sermon. So as Peter is preaching to these Jews on Pentecost, he continues to bring up Old Testament prophecy because they knew the Old Testament well. The Jews would have known the Old Testament front and back. They would have been told the stories of, of God's people um, in the Old Testament at night before they went to bed. Um, as they were walking along the road, they would have been shared those stories. And they would have known the Old Testament prophecies very well. Well, if you look in verse 25 here, we see there is a quote from the, first, uh, from the 16th Psalm. And here they are quoting one of the Psalms of David. And what it says in verse 25 is this, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, David said. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. Why in the world would he say his flesh will rest in hope? Oh, maybe it's because the Holy Spirit is inspiring David to prophesy of the coming resurrection. Because David is saying, you know what? I will die one day, and one day they will lay this old body in a grave. But guess what? That flesh can rest in hope because one day it's going to be resurrected. That is a prophecy of the resurrection. Verse 27, here he talks, he's talking to God, and he says, Because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. Well, we know there about the decay that it can't be talking about David at this point because we know that David's bones are still somewhere on this earth today. That there is a tomb somewhere where the bones of King David are still lying. So whose bones are we talking about? Whose body are we talking about? The Holy One that will not see decay. Here we have a prophecy of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Psalms. Here David is saying, you will not allow the Lord Jesus to see decay. Because on the third day before his flesh was able to begin to rot, God raised him from the dead. Verse 28, you have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Here he is making sure that the Jews understand, even from the perspective of the Old Testament saints, that Jesus was going to rise again. 
that this man named Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is God who became flesh, would indeed rise from the dead, the ones that you lawless people nailed to a cross and killed. He is the very one that rose from the dead, and he is the very one that you need to accept in order to have your sins forgiven. These Jews would have been listening to this, and this would have been a very, very intense sermon. They would have been doing a lot of thinking at this point. A lot of conviction would have been happening. I believe there's some here today, by the way, that's never accepted Jesus. I'm not going to be so naive as to think that every person in this room has trusted in the Jesus Christ of the Bible. And today, I want you to hear the same message that Peter is preaching, that the Jesus who was nailed to a cross and died, the Jesus who was laid in the tomb, the Jesus who rose from the dead, he did it so you could be saved. And the only way that you can go to heaven is by accepting this Jesus, the Jesus who is God. John chapter 14, verse 6 says this, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter 4, verse 10 through 12 says this, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Listen up. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. It is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be saved without accepting the Jesus who is God. And thirdly and lastly, God the Father and the gospel. The first person of the Trinity, God the Father. We see Peter reference him beginning in verse 29. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus we are all witnesses of. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, this is what David said, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. Here we see the Father's part, the Father's role in the story of salvation. We see in verse 30 that God the Father promised David that one of his own descendants would be seated on the throne of Israel. That's called the Davidic covenant. When you look at 2 Samuel, here God told David, listen, one of your children, one of your own descendants, one of your own sons will be seated upon the throne of Israel forever. He actually uses the term forever. And as we think through that, what does that mean forever? Does that mean that just continual succession of people will continue to sit on the throne? Well, we know that today that no one is sitting on the throne of Israel physically in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ, if you look in Matthew and Luke, you see the lineage of Jesus. And you can literally count through the generations. Jesus, indeed, whether you go through his earthly father, Joseph, or whether you go through the virgin, Mary, no matter what, you see that both of them were descendants of David. That regardless if you go through his adopted father or Mary, Jesus is a descendant of King David. 
Jesus is the one that was promised here. Jesus is the one who would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Here God promised David this. Here that promise rings out to us because we can have faith and know that Jesus is in charge. Jesus is going to sit on the throne forever. Verses 31 and 32 speak of God the Father raising the Lord Jesus from the dead. It was God the Father who raised up Jesus' dead body to life. It was God the Father who allowed Jesus to walk out of that tomb and leave it empty. We also see in verse 33 that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and he received the Father's promise of the Holy Spirit. Here God the Father is the one that bestowed authority upon Jesus. He is the one that gave Jesus charge over all judgment. He is the one that seated Jesus at the right hand. He is the one that gave Jesus authority over all things. God the Father is the one who bestowed the Holy Spirit upon us. He is the one that sent forth the Holy Spirit as he promised he would do. David even said in Psalms 110, verse 1, and I want you to hear this. It's also in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 35. So look there again in that prophecy, Acts chapter 2, verse 34. This is a quote of the 110th Psalm, verse 1. The Lord declared to my Lord. Now that's kind of interesting terminology there. That's interesting language. So how does the Lord declare to the Lord? Well, here David is prophesying and lending to the fact that Jesus Christ is God. He's saying, God the Father declared to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here God is the one that declared Jesus is God. Jesus is full deity just like I am. We are one God who exists in three persons. Here God lends to that deity of Jesus so as God has given all the authority, God has sent forth the Holy Spirit. God has promised from times of old that the Messiah would come and save the earth from their sin. We understand that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all essential in salvation. And if we believe in a God who is not a God who exists in three persons, you believe in the wrong God. There's a reason why we baptize you think about what we did to Aiden earlier in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's because our God exists in three persons. Our God is unique and particular. Our God has an identity that separates him from other gods and deities. I teach my children, as I said before, always ask which God. Don't ever take that for granted. Always ask people who say they believe in God, which God do you believe in? Tell me who your God is. When we think about that today, I want to ask you that same question. As you say, I trust in God or I believe in God, which God? Is it the God of the Bible? Is it the God that Peter preached? The God who exists, Holy Spirit, Son, and Father? Or is your God something that's made up in your own mind? Is your the God of a different religion? Is, your the God, is yours the God of American patriotism? Is your the, yours the God that cannot fulfill? Is yours a God that is not biblical? Is yours the God who does not see sin as ugly? Maybe you have created your own God because you're uncomfortable with repenting of your sins. You know, I believe atheism, and I, I liked how Eric said this one week on our announcement video. He said, atheists only exist because God exists. Without God, there would be no such thing as atheists. Actually, the word atheism, theism, in the word atheist, means God. If I believe in God, I'm a theist. 
Well, atheism requires the word God in its, in its terminology. So if God didn't exist, there would be no atheists, right? So today, you know what I ask? Do you believe the God of the Bible? Do you trust in him and him alone? The, the, the God who is Jesus Christ, the God who became flesh and dwelt among us, bow your heads this morning as we go into a time of prayer.